Well, good morning again. Um, we're going to be looking at the uh, opening of Ephesians this morning. And as a way of kind of getting into this passage, one thing that the, the Bible assumes that I think probably a lot of us in here could agree with, regardless of what we believe this morning about God or about the Bible, is that the world is broken. It's already been mentioned a couple of times today, but I just kind of want you to think about the brokenness of the world as a way of entering into this passage. Um, when you think about the brokenness of the world, uh, think big first. Think about things like the conflict in the Middle East, uh, global terrorism, human trafficking, oppressive governments, refugees, the millions of people that are affected by all of these things. Uh, zero in a little bit. Think about our nation. Uh, have we ever been more polarized politically than we are right now? Um, probably not. Uh, but think about, we're 50 years past the civil rights movement. Have we solved racism in our country? I don't think so. The world is broken. And then if we kept going down, kept zeroing in, I think we would say, if we were honest, that we are broken, that our lives are broken. And the book of Ephesians is all about uh, this broken world and God's plan to reunite and bring all things back together in and through Jesus. So let's read this opening passage. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory." In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Uh, if you would, let's, let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, there is so much in this passage, things that boggle our minds that we can't even wrap our head around. Um, but there is so much here about your glorious grace and your goodness and your love to us. 
in and through Jesus. And so would you help us in the moments that we have now to ponder, to consider, to reflect, to be encouraged by what you tell us about yourself and your plan and your goodness and grace to us in Jesus. Help us to do this, we pray in his name. Amen. If you were just to look at the beginning of this letter, I think it would be fairly easy to pick up on the fact that Paul is excited. In verse 3, he praises, he blesses God. Three times in this opening section, he says something like, to the praise of his grace, speaking of God. And you may or may not know this, the New Testament was written in Greek, and in the original, this whole section, or at least verses 3 through 14, is one sentence. It's 202 words in what one scholar said is the most monstrous sentence conglomeration I have ever found in the Greek language. Paul is excited. I want you to think about what excites you. What do you praise? Uh, C.S. Lewis rightly said this, The world rings with praise. We all do this. Lewis said, Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. And then he says this, It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. What Lewis is saying is there's something necessary about sharing, expressing, telling others about what we find amazing that completes the enjoyment of it. Many of you are going to gather and watch the Super Bowl tonight, uh, and I'm assuming most of you watched it last year when the Eagles brought the trophy home in that wonderful victory. Um... And you may be sitting there on your couch with your wings or your chips and your salsa, and there may be this moment in the game where something happens and you rise up and you grab someone next to you and you're like, oh my gosh, did you see that? Oh, and you can't contain yourself because of what you've seen, this beautiful thing that you've seen, the amazing thing that you have seen. Uh, As Lewis noted, there are many things that we can praise. We can praise books and music and arts and games and sports. And I was even thinking, I bet there's someone out there that praises stamp collections. Maybe someone in here, and I'm not, that's not a bad thing to be excited about, but we can get excited about just about anything. But Paul's praise in this opening of Ephesians is different. It's fundamentally different because the love and grace of God that Paul can't stop talking about is actually the very thing that is going to bring the world back together again. So this morning, I want us to consider the love of God, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit, and then end by asking, how is this love meant to heal our world? So, First, the love of the Father. Um, If you've ever heard of that thing that Christians believe called the Trinity, you see it in a passage like this one. The Trinity, uh, briefly, is the doctrine that God is one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the very being of God, you have unity and diversity. It's not 
three gods who like to hang out together in this club called the Trinity. It's not one God who puts on different masks and sometimes shows up as the Father or the Son or the Spirit. It's one God who exists in three persons such that each person is fully God, at the same time has perfect union and relations with the other, too. It's not something the church made up, it's, you can see it in this passage, and it's not something you can fully comprehend. But it's something we believe uh, because it's what we're taught in Scripture. So Paul begins in verse 3 by praising God the Father, who he says has blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing. How has God blessed us? Let's think about that. How has He loved us? Verse 4. It says, He chose us. He determined, in other words, to set His love on us. Now, this is where some might feel a little upset or have uh, a lot of questions running through your mind. What does this mean for my free choice? What does this mean for free will? Are you saying that I'm not free? Let me say, if I spend an hour on this, I don't think I could satisfy you. So, if you have questions, talk to Jason. (laughs) But Paul isn't writing this because he wants to get into a philosophical debate with you. Paul is writing this because he is filled with awe and wonder and praise as he talks about this love of God that was determined to work in our favor before God even created the world. This God that we read in verse 11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that he's not surprised, he's not thrown off, his plans aren't altered, that he is the sovereign king And He has chosen to love you. If you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, Paul wants you to trace the love of God for you back. Back before the day that you decided to believe and embrace the good news of Jesus. Back before you were even born. Back before Jesus died on the cross for you. Back before creation into eternity and what we can't even comprehend. That God the Father, knowing you intimately, knowing the ways that you would be flawed, the ways that you would be broken, the ways that you would sin and turn against Him, and yet determined to set His love on you. That you would be His. That He would make you beautiful and holy and blameless before Him. Why? Because He loves you. The love of the Father has chosen us, but chosen us for what? Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. The love of the Father chooses us, predestines us, that He would adopt us, that He would make us His children. And adoption is a really rich concept in the Bible. Uh, When the people of Israel are taken out of slavery, when they're redeemed in the Exodus event, God calls the nation His Son. They belong to Him. They are His treasured possession. And you can hear echoes of all of that language in this passage. But in addition to this, the metaphor of adoption for Paul would also have... um, 
connections to the first century Greco-Roman world that he lived in. And somewhat different from today, in the first century, adoption uh, was a little bit different. So oftentimes it was adults who were adopted, not children. And it would work like this. So let's say you have a wealthy landowner, and this landowner has no heir. And so what he would do is he would take one of his servants, and he would legally adopt this servant. So that, that servant is now a son, a legal son, who would inherit all that the master had. And I think Paul is connecting this idea for us that we sorry, let me back up, that we are not servants, uh, we are not just hired hands, but we are God's children, his adopted children. And we are children of God because we are united, verse 5, to Jesus, the Son. And it was God's good purpose to do this. I mean, listen, it was his delight and his joy that even before the creation of the world, that he would set his love on you who know Jesus, that he would be your papa, your father, and that you would be his child. And what else, what else can be said to this, what Paul says in verse 6, that all of this is to bring erupting praise and, and glo- to God's glorious grace that he has given us in the beloved, in and through Jesus. Let me just say for a second that if, if you're here... Um, and this teaching seems strange to you, predestination, chosen. Um, if this feels like a deterrent to you uh, to believe the gospel, or if you're here and you don't believe and you say, well, what does that mean for me? God is at work in ways that we don't even understand and know sometimes. And so I would just want you to even think, why are you here today? How did you end up in this building listening to me babbling right now? Could it be, perhaps, that God is at work in ways that you don't even understand, that you may not even understand for months and years down the line, but you will look back at some point and say, God was loving me today. That's the kind of love that we need. Let's think about the love of the Son. Eleven times in this passage, Paul says, in Christ, or pretty much every time he says, in Him, he's talking about in Jesus. To be a Christian is to be united to Christ, that we are connected to Him. And in verse 7, we read about the love of the Son, uh, where it says this, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. And I want you to think for a moment about this language of blood. Do you ever think about that? We are weird people. Christians. If you're new to Christianity or if, you're, if you've never even heard much of the gospel before, you're probably hearing something that the rest of us have become really, really numb to because we sing about blood fairly often and we say weird things like being washed clean by blood, which should sound alarming. Um, In the book of Leviticus, the book of the Bible that is largely focused on the sacrificial system, all the rules and the rituals in the Old Testament dealing with with sin, with human guilt, uh, with failing to be and do what God calls us to, there's a passage that says this, Leviticus 17.11, 
For the life of a creature is in the blood. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. See, what the ancients knew and what we in our modern world have tried to rid ourselves of in many ways and move away from is that for my life to be redeemed, to be bought back, for my trespasses to be dealt with, a price has to be paid. There's a cost to that redemption. There's a really great scene in one of my favorite shows, uh, Breaking Bad, that illustrates this modern, modern problem of dealing with guilt. Um, if you haven't seen the show, uh, one of the main characters, Jesse, in the midst of living his life as a drug dealer and a drug manufacturer and a drug addict, his girlfriend dies of an overdose. The love of his life dies, and he is riddled with guilt and shame, and he hates himself because of what his brokenness and what his addiction led to the death of the one he loved. And so there's a scene where Jesse's in group therapy in a drug rehabilitation center, and I love all of the scenes of the group therapy. If you've seen the show, I'd love to talk to you about them at some point. They are amazing. And they're amazing because they're very honest. So this is the scene. They're all talking about the problems that they have, and the therapist uh, is trying to encourage them, and he's talking to them about the problem of guilt for the things that they've done, and shame. And he speaks of this voice of self-condemnation in everyone's head, and he says to them, are you enough? Are you enough? Are you good enough to be okay with who you are? I say yes, but what I say doesn't matter because you're the only one with the voice. You're the only one who can fight the voice inside your head. And Jesse is clearly not buying any of this sort of positive thinking kind of therapy. And so at one point he says, okay, so so you're telling us be happy, forgive yourself, blah, blah, blah. And then he looks right at the therapist and he says, have you ever hurt anyone. And there's this pause, and the therapist says, I killed my daughter. And he goes on to tell this story of how when he was addicted to alcohol and cocaine, he got in a fight with his wife, and he left the house, and he got in his truck, and he hit the gas and backed out of the driveway and ran over his six-year-old daughter. And everybody is speechless, and Jesse says, how do you not hate yourself? And he says, I did hate myself for a long time, but it didn't help me stop drinking, and it didn't help me from stop getting high. It just made it that much worse. And then he says, guilt and shame, it just gets in the way of true change. And the scene ends. And you can see that Jesse is very unsatisfied with that answer. Look, you don't have to have killed anyone or destroyed your life with drugs to feel these things, to feel guilt, to feel shame, to feel like we're not enough, to feel like we're not the people we're supposed to be. I mean, if we're honest, I think these things show up all the time. They show up in our work, and they show up in relationships and friendships, and they show up in marriages, and they show up with kids and parenting kids. What we are left with in our modern world when God is largely stripped away and his relevance is dismissed is we're left with either feeling shame and guilt 
and that destroying us, or this sort of trite, unsatisfying answer of, well, just accept yourself. In moving away from this language of sin, trespass, in suppressing guilt and shame, we've not gotten rid of brokenness. Statistics will tell you that there are more college students who seek mental health therapy and and help while they're in college than there was 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So we've not dealt with the problem. What we've done is we've removed some some of the resources that we have to actually deal with it. What if there was a story that made sense of the brokenness? A story that says, on the one hand, it's not wrong that you feel broken, that you feel shame and guilt at times, but a story that also said that you were loved. What if there was a payment? What if there was a life given for your life? And what if there was another voice besides just the voice in your own head, a voice that said, I've come to set you free. I've come to pay your debt. I've come to settle the score that you can be forgiven and free. I've given my life for yours. This is the love of the Son, and it's the wonderful grace and redemption that is in Jesus. And Paul says in this passage, this grace has been lavished upon us. I just want you to think about that word for a minute. Lavished. It's overflowing. It's not just the bare minimum. I mean, in terms of meals, a bologna sandwich and carrot sticks is an adequate meal. But a Thanksgiving dinner is a lavish meal. What kind of redemption is in Jesus? It's lavish. It's so much more than we need. It's abundant and overflowing. Let's think about the love of the Spirit. You see, it's the Father who had determined to set His love on us, make us His. It's the Son who secures redemption by His blood. And now it is the Spirit who applies that grace and mercy to our lives. And we see this in verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says, But at that very moment that you trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals you. Which means that you've been marked out. You've been marked out by God's own personal presence. That He is with you. He is dwelling with you. He keeps you. And this is the King. This is the King who doesn't make mistakes. Who doesn't let His people go. And then we read in verse 14 about this Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And the word that's translated here, guarantee, was was a word that was used in the first century for legal or commercial transactions. So the idea is something like a down payment. It's the first installment. The Holy Spirit living in you, God's personal presence in you, is the first installment. It's the appetizer of the assured outcome of where you are headed. I just want you to think about that and and how that might change the way you think about life. I know my students much better, so let me apply it to my students and you think about what this would mean for you. 
When I think about my students, they are some of the most anxious people I know. And it really makes a lot of sense because there's so much of life that is unknown to them. There's no guarantee that they will get the job. There's no guarantee they will get into the grad school. There's no guarantee that the relationship they're in will work out. They don't know where they're going. They're often confused. And think about what Paul says here about the Holy Spirit. We don't know what's going to happen in one year, in five years, in ten years. But if the end is secure, then you can rest now. Think how life would be different if we believed this. If this was actually real to us, if this was the story that we lived in and how we thought about life, that we were surrounded by the love of God, the love of the Father who delights to make us His, the love of the Son who secures our redemption at the cost of His own life, the love of the Spirit who is with us and secures us and seals us and guarantees our glorious end. That would be amazing, But Paul didn't tell us this just so that we would be individually encouraged. If you can believe it or not, it's actually bigger than that. This is not just meant for our personal enjoyment, but it is part of God's plan to sum up all things. Verse 10, this shared love, this common love as as those who are redeemed in Christ is part of the plan, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In other words, we're meant to see our stories in light of this vast, big one. The shared love that we have from God, the shared enjoyment and praise is meant to bring humanity together as those who would be otherwise very different, perhaps. It's meant to bring us together, a part of this bigger story. Um, A story that really highlights this. uh, 1914, it was during World War I, And it's an account of a very large truce that happened and a ceasefire that happened on Christmas. If you don't remember World War I, that was the really horrible one with trench warfare, where nations were entrenched with no man's land in between, and they lived in these trenches, and they died in these trenches, and when the trumpet blew and you rushed out onto the battlefield, you were likely killed in no man's land, and you did that for years. And it was Christmas Eve, 1914, and uh, one of the men, uh, Graham Williams, who was in the 5th London Rifle Brigade, describes what happened. Christmas Eve, first the Germans sang one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours until we started up with, O come all ye faithful. And then the Germans immediately joined in singing and sang the same hymn to the Latin words. I thought, well, this is a very extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. The next day, they came out of their trenches, they exchanged cigarettes, they buried their dead, and some reports even say that they played a game of soccer together. One day that they didn't fight. But I want you to think about the many trenches that we can find ourselves in in this nation, and that our culture and our world is divided into. There are obviously political trenches. There are trenches of relating to race or education level or socioeconomic or other aspects that divide up our culture. And the love of God is meant to reunite and restore humanity 
and harmony to this world in and through Jesus as we share in this common love and this common praise. So as a way of concluding, I'll leave you with two questions. One, just to ponder, what trenches do you live in? And how might God be moving you by His love and by joining in this praise to participate in His redemptive plan to unite all things in Jesus? Let me pray. Father, we thank You that You are so glorious and so gracious and good to us. And I pray that we would enjoy and love and praise You for the redemption that You have brought about in this world. That we would love You, Jesus, for the way that You have secured it. That we would love You, Holy Spirit, for securing us in it. And would You help us to join in praise and to see what it would look like for us to be a part of You bringing all things together in Jesus. Help us to do this, we pray in His name. Amen.